But I'm, I always enjoy it when I get an opportunity to preach. Um, I remember the very first time I ever practiced preaching at Living Hope Mary's when I asked Pastor Jason McDonald, I'm like, can I still be a pastor if I don't preach because this isn't for me? <laughs> but it's, it's been awesome to see just uh, the opportunity that God allows us to have and the honor it is to, to preach this morning. Pastor Aaron is at uh, one of our sponsor churches this morning. And uh, we're in a series, we've jumped out of Romans for a little bit, we're in a series called Listen, the um, Hearing God's Voice. There's just a lot of things going on in each and every one of our lives and the uncertainties that we see in this world. Just a constant reminder that God is speaking, if we'll listen. And uh, we're, this is the part three of this series. Uh, we've started with the fact that God speaks through His Word primarily and authoritatively, but He also uses other means to do that as well, or other methods, I should say where he speaks through our circumstances and he speaks through people, as we're going to see today and next week as he speaks through prayer. But all of them, as we're going to see again today, is rooted in the Word of God. Just because somebody says they have a word from the Lord doesn't mean it's actually from the Lord. And so this morning we're going to dive into Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. A fairly common um, and familiar passage, um, familiar to me as I've studied it extensively, yet I missed and you're going to see here in a second what there's so much debate and you get studying it and you kind of miss the point sometimes. And I'm just very thankful that God led me to this passage this week. So if you will stand with me in honor of God's word and open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start with verses 11 and go through 14. Ephesians 4 verses 11 through 14. It says, And he, as God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us, that you've preserved it. And God, we're thankful that you speak to us through many different ways. God, I pray that you would open our hearts today to your word. We want to give you the praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing that I want us to see here, and, and again, kind of what we're going to look at today, is that God speaks through other believers. This should not be a shock to us, because this is exactly how we got this, right? God has chosen to declare his word through other believers. We know this in our own personal lives, but even here in this passage, I want us to notice something. In verse 11, it says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, this verse is the one that I've studied extensively because there's much debate about this, right? Who are the apostles? Who are the prophets? Are we talking about just the 12? Are we talking about anyone with that gift? Same with prophets. All these different things. And if you know me, I love studying that stuff, and I think there's a great value in studying that stuff. However, a lot of times when we study that, then we miss the rest of the passage. We miss the point of that. So this morning, I'm less concerned about who these people are and more concerned is why did God give them to the church? God did a very specific thing here. So I want us to see why he gave them and then how they accomplished what he gave them to do. The first thing is that God gave them to equip the saints for the work of the ministry in verse 12, for the building up of the body of Christ. When we look at the word equipped, it means to bring to completion, a perfecting, an equipping, right? Now, there's a process that, that we see through this. It's not just that as soon as they do it, we're there. There's a lifelong process of equipping and perfecting. And there's a, the process leads to verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith, 
of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is complete spiritual maturity. God gave people to proclaim His Word, which will then bring us to complete spiritual maturity. It says that when we obtain the unity of the faith, something extremely difficult to do, that's why we're commanded to do it over and over and over because it's not normal for us. To the knowledge of the Son of God, it gets no higher than that. To mature manhood, how mature is that? To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the definition of sanctification. God has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to sanctify His church. He builds on this when he contrasts who we were prior to that in verse 14. It says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. This is who we are apart from Christ. It's who we are apart from the church and who we are apart from sitting under God's word. Children here speaks of our spiritual maturity. And in the Greek, it literally means a simple-minded, unlearned, immature thought process. And as I think about that, it's like, how could that person discern what it is that God is calling us to do, what he's speaking to us? He goes on and says that they're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And again, the imagery here is just like if you were to throw a piece of paper out in a tornado. Whichever way the wind blows, that thing's going. And here it specifically speaks of a mind that is mentally tossed and agitated. One that runs to this. Well, that sounds good. Oh, no, maybe God wants to. No, that person cannot discern the truth of God. And yet that's you, who you and I are apart from God's plan and the church and the, the preaching of God's word. I don't want you to misunderstand, though. It's not just listening to someone talk. Again, the word is what accomplishes all this. God doesn't want us to remain in this state. That's why he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip us. How do they equip us is what I want us to look at now. In verse 12, when it says to equip the saints. Again, the word equip means a bringing to completion, a making perfect. What does that? There's only one thing that can do that, and that's the word of God. Past two weeks, Pastor Aaron's brought us to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That word equipped is made perfect. Perfectly equipped for every good work. God gave those to preach the word of God. And that's how we are perfected and become sanctified. It's one of the main processes in which God sanctifies his church. But again, only if they're preaching the word of God. It's not just what I have to say. You don't need to know what Joe has to think. You don't need to know what Pastor Aaron has to think. You need to know what God says. So it begs the question, why not just read the Bible by ourselves at home? Why not cut out the middleman so we're not, we're not going to be deceived by someone who's not proclaiming the word? And the answer to that is, is God does nothing by accident. He does nothing without a purpose, without intentionality. In Isaiah 55, 11, God says, So shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And what did God say here? That he gave the apostles, the prophets, the the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God doesn't do anything by accident. But again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you shouldn't read your Bible at home. I think you should. It's a tremendous blessing that you and I have multiple copies of this. We have it on our phone. We have it in any language we want. 
Yet I think before we pretend that reading this at home by ourselves is the ultimate way to sanctification, we need to recognize the state of the church all throughout human history. And if having this in our possession to read at home is the only way God sanctifies his church, then he has left the church for thousands of years alone. And that's not true. God has gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints by the preaching of God's word. That's how he sanctifies us. This is just a tremendous blessing that we have it in our hands. And we should take advantage of that. God's chosen to speak through other believers. And he wants to use us. It's not just pastors. It's not just, you know, the teachers that proclaim God's word. He wants to use us. Look at Hebrews 10, 24. It says, and let us consider how to stir one another one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Now look at this. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'm fascinated at how many Christians look at the end seemingly coming to an end, like look at the world coming to an end. And then they sit back and do nothing and just want to watch it. To me, this is very convicting. If we see the world coming, like we know Christ can come back at any moment, we have a job to do. And we're told to gather together and to encourage each other and to lift each other up, which only happens through the word of God, all the more as we see the day of nearing, drawing near. There's a verse that's very familiar that we all can recognize as we see the end kind of coming. 2 Timothy 4, 3 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. We see this all the time. In fact, you know, if you try to correct someone, they, I, I'm just going to go to a church that agrees with me, right? Like, if you don't, if you don't like this, I'll, these people will support me over here. We see this all the time, and we see it happening, so therefore we're like, look, this, the Bible says this is what's going to happen at the end. Yet again, we miss verses 1 and 2 to that. Paul tells uh, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by the appearing of his kingdom. That's a pretty serious charge. And in verse 2, it says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That is what offsets verse 3, that a time is coming where people are no longer going to tolerate that. We're to do that. We're to preach the word. And again, when he goes on to say, to be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, what does that? The word of God. He says that right before that in the verses 16 and 17. God does not want to leave us to our own, you know, our own vulnerabilities. God is so clear that he's given us his word to protect us, to sanctify us, to lead us towards him. He chooses to do that through other believers. The second thing I want us to see here is that we're to listen when he speaks. In verse 14, again, he gives us the state of who we are. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. God doesn't want us to be in that state. That's why he gave those to preach the word of God. That's why he gives us his word all throughout every generation. But I also want to notice how we got this way because this is where the, there's a temptation to fall back into this. We got this way because we rejected God and we listened to man. And yet, listen to how he describes man. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Again, we're children, simple-minded, you know, apart from the body. And when they, the, in the Greek, it means they use trickery, sleight of hand, to twist the truth of God and to convince you that it's true. We see this all the time. All the time someone takes a verse, and that alone, that's what the devil did, Right? 
They knew exactly what God said. And he said, well, he didn't really mean that, though, right? And convinces us. We're so vulnerable by ourselves. We read the Bible by ourselves at home, and that's a tremendous benefit. But again, we're vulnerable by ourselves. And God tells us that we, we need to rely on other people and we should actually seek that out. In Proverbs 16, 2, it says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Proverbs 21, 2, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. See, left alone, even reading our own Bible... We understand this. If there's no one to give us input, as we read this, sometimes we can interpret it how we want to interpret it. There's been many times in the past that someone calls me and says, hey, I've been reading this. Do you think God is speaking this? And I find it interesting sometimes because it's like, I think you can twist it to that, but that's not what it actually says. And that's not me knowing all because the exact same things happened to me. I'm like, hey, I just read this and I think it's clear this. And someone's like, no, you're wrong. And we know that because of this, this, this in Scripture. But if we're left to ourselves, we can interpret this however we want. We have the Holy Spirit, which is a huge, huge benefit. We're also told we can quench the Holy Spirit with our sin. We need other people. Here in Proverbs, we also see the difference of what's described as a fool and as of a wise man. Proverbs 12, 15, it says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. In 15, 31, 32, it says, The ear that listens to life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Now, this isn't just any reproof. This isn't just any advice. Here in 15, it clearly says it's life-giving reproof. And in the Greek, it literally means godly reproof because God is the giver of life. This isn't my opinion. When we reprove someone, we take the Scriptures to them. And a wise man will listen to that. It's interesting to see how David talks about this. In Psalm 141, look at the words that David uses when he talks about getting rebuked. In Psalm 141.5, it says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. And let my head not refuse it. That's some hard language that David uses. But he understands that if a righteous man was to strike him with rebuke, it's a kindness because David desires to seek after the Lord. David doesn't want to be left to walk and wander in his own sin. And of course, we know David speaks from experience, too. Many times does God have to send someone to David to let him see what he's justified to himself. The most notable is in 2 Samuel 12. And I encourage you, go to that in your Bibles. We're going to walk through this story a little bit. 2 Samuel 12. This is where God sends Nathan. And Nathan's going to rebuke David for a sin that he knows wrong, yet remarkably has somehow kind of written it off as if it's okay. In verse 1, it says, And the Lord had sent Nathan to David. So just in case there's someone who doesn't know what I'm talking about here, David had saw Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and decided to take her, have an affair with her. And then instead of coming clean, he decides to kill Uriah so that way he could marry her as his own wife. And in the last verse of chapter 11, it says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God sends Nathan to confront David. And I'm going to paraphrase this for the sake of time. But Nathan comes to him, and he poses this story that David thinks is an actual event, which it is, but it's speaking to him. And he poses about a rich man and a poor man. And he says the rich man had everything. 
had all these flocks, had all these different things. And there was a poor man that had one lamb. And he took that lamb and it ate at his table and he, he cared for that lamb as if it was his own daughter. And then a guest came to the rich man and in the custom of that day, you had to provide for that guest. You had to provide food and all that thing. And it said the rich man didn't want to take from his own, so he took the lamb of the poor man and prepared it for the food. What's fascinating is as David hears this, David knows the law. And in verse 5, David says, it says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold. Look at verse 7. Nathan said to David, You are the man. And he goes on to explain, You're the rich man. God has made you the king of Israel. He gave you everything that Saul had, and you took what Uriah had, the poor man, as if it was your own. You're the man. In verse 8, I find it interesting too. God said if the kingdom, everything that Saul had, if that was too little, I would add so much more. Yet you've done what's evil in the sight of the Lord. Here's what's interesting about this story too. This took some time before David got here. What we're told is that this boy was born. We also see in here that after Uriah died, David pretended like he wasn't the one who killed her. Or killed him. So then he takes Bathsheba. Then she gets pregnant. So there's a time that happened from the affair, the murder. Then she gets pregnant. Nine months later, and then who knows when, the boy is born. Then God sends Nathan to confront David. Which means, David, the one who says that he meditates on the, the Lord's words day and night, had somehow justified this in his own mind. I find that fascinating. There's such a danger when we're left alone. Yet I want us to understand something. As we see through the Proverbs, there's a difference between a fool and a wise man. And notice the response to David as he's confronted and rebuked by Nathan. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He recognized his sin, though it was horrible to Bathsheba and Uriah, it was ultimately against the Lord. He repents of that, and we also see that Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. See, David understood the law. When he talks about the that whoever done this with the rich man and poor man should pay back fourfold that comes out of Exodus 22. David knew what he did was wrong, but it somehow justified it. Yet when he's rebuked by godly rebuke, he repents. And what you see is you see the mercy of God. Still, he has to pay for his sin. God says the sword will never leave his family. There's all kinds of destruction that's going to come. Yet God spares his life at that time because he repents. Now I want to look at another one where another king had the same rebuke and, and was, didn't respond the same way. 1 Kings 22, go there as well. Here we see King Ahab. Ahab, not a good dude. In fact, God had said like no one had sinned like Ahab had. He had done multiple things, multiple sins against God, and God sent, you know, most part sent Elijah, and he would rebuke him, and he would repent, and God would move on. But here we're going to see Kind of the final straw. In 1 Kings 22, we see uh, King Ahab with the son-in-law, uh, Jehoshaphat. He says, hey, this land over here is ours. We've been remained quiet as they're dwelling, but let's go take this land. And Jehoshaphat is like, hey, I'm here with you, but let's inquire of the Lord just to be sure, right? And before you think Jehoshaphat's this wise guy, I want you to know he just had a moment of wisdom. But he said, let's at least seek the Lord. So King Ahab said, all right. So he gets together his prophets, which numbered about 400. Now, this should be our first sign, right? 
When have we ever seen God take a large number of prophets to prove him? He never did. There was a single prophet that rebuked the many. When I, when I first read this, I actually put a note in here. I said, you know, this should be our first sign because you think about um, Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal. That's the first thing that came to mind. And then on Saturday, as I was reading about King Ahab again, I realized that King Ahab, he was the one who had the 450 prophets of Baal. He's the one who pitted him with Elijah. Elijah calls on God to bring down fire from heaven, proves he's the one true God, and they kill all those prophets. And then here we go, a little time later, Ahab's already brought up prophets that speak what he wants to say again. It's an interesting, interesting scenario. So he brings those prophets, and he asks the prophets, he said, hey, should we go into the land? And they said, go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Josephat, again, it's like, that seems shady. He said, is there anyone else that we can acquire of? Notice what, notice what Ahab says here in verses 8 of 1 Kings 22. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man, again, interesting, he's got 400 prophets, but there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. He never prophesies good, but evil, meaning... This isn't the first time that Micaiah has prophesied against what King Ahab wanted to do. In uh, Proverbs 9, 8, it says, Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. You see the contrast between Ahab and David. So they get Micaiah. He gives in. So all right, I'll go. Jehoshaphat wants to talk to him, so we'll talk to him. And it's interesting, as you read through there, a messenger goes and gets Micaiah. And he, the messenger says, Hey, all the prophets have spoken on one accord and favorable of the king. Let your prophecy be the same. And Micaiah says, no. He says, uh, as I, he says, whatever the Lord gives me, that is what I'm going to speak. And so Micaiah gets before the king. They ask him, and essentially Micaiah kind of gives him a sarcastic remark. Yeah, go ahead. The king will give it to you. And Ahab actually, he doesn't, he doesn't take that. He's like, how many times have I made you swear to say only what the Lord will say? And so Micaiah goes on to talk about this vision that he had where the Lord goes up and says, who's going to entice Ahab? And the one said, I will. He said, how's he going to do it? He said, I'm going to put a lying spirit in all of, his pro- all of his prophets to deceive him. So Micaiah gives him the vision of what's going to happen. And then in uh, verse 23, it says, now therefore behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster on you. How does Ahab respond? Micah gets punched in the face. Mocked, and Ahab demands that he be seized and thrown into prison. And I don't want us to miss this. And he says, feed him nothing until I come in peace. What Ahab has just done is he's denied the prophecy of God and said, not only am I going to go, I'm also going to come back in peace. And we know this because in verse 28, Micaiah says, if you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, hear all you peoples. What Micaiah is doing is consistent with what we see throughout the Old Testament. If someone was a true prophet, their prophecy came true. They were deemed a false prophet and therefore put to death if their prophecy was a lie. So Micaiah says, look, everyone hear this. If you come back in peace, the Lord hasn't spoken to me. Now we can assume how this plans out, but I want us to notice something. In this, Ahab knows that Micaiah is telling the truth. Because starting in verse 29, you're going to see King Ahab and Jehoshaphat. And they're going to go ahead and go into the land. Ahab convinces Jehoshaphat to dress up like him. And he goes in disguise. 
And if you read down through here, what you're going to find is that they were, the other army was told to fight, and this is in verse 31, fight with neither small nor great, but only the king of Israel. And it says, And the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat. And they said, Surely he's the king of Israel. So they went after him, and he cries out, and they realize it wasn't Ahab. So then they turn, they see Ahab in disguise, and they kill him. Ahab knew that what Micaiah was saying was true. God had brought a prophet to him to declare that what you're wanting to do is not what the Lord wants done. And yet he still just does it anyway. And as I read through this week, as I was going through the Proverbs, there's one that stood out as I thought about King Ahab. Proverbs 29.1 says, He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. And there's this imagery here. You can almost see like a, like a fence post standing there in the wind. It either, has to, it either has to bend or it's going to snap. It either has to give in or it's going to snap. Over and over and over, Ahab had sinned, was confronted by God, and finally he just stiffens his neck and it ends in his death. I pray we're not like the fool, and that we'd be like the wise man who seeks reproof. The last thing I want to see here as we come to a close so I want to answer the question, why does God choose to do this? Why does God choose to speak through other people to sanctify us? Why does he choose to speak through other people uh, to tell us what he wants us to know? And the answer to that is very simple. God does everything for his glory and for our good. God does everything for his glory and for our good. And I think a story that clearly shows that is I want to look at Peter and Cornelius now. Peter and Cornelius, a fascinating, fascinating story. This is in Acts chapter 10. Again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to have all these verses up there. I encourage you to read through sometime. But starting in Acts chapter 10, we're going to find this man, a centurion named Cornelius. And he is a devout, God-fearing, righteous man, we're told. He's not saved. He's actually a Gentile who wants to worship the one true God. And so he's trying to do everything he knows to do to worship the one true God. And he has this vision and an angel comes to him and says, look, the Lord has heard your prayers. So therefore, send your men to Joppa and go get Peter. And we're going to see in this story that Cornelius is obviously asking, what do I need to do to be saved? And I always find it interesting. God could have told him, but he chooses not to. He wants him to go get Peter. And we're going to see why here in a second. So at the same time, we're told that Peter is sitting down ready to eat. And he was hungry beyond hunger because then he started having this dream about food coming down from the four corners of heaven, it says. Yet all the food that came down was stuff he was forbidden to eat as a Jew. And, and God says, eat it. He says, no. He said, that, that stuff has never touched my lip. I've never touched anything that's unclean or common. And in verse 15, it says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And we're told that Peter's still trying to understand what this vision is. I can just imagine what's going on with the other people at the table. But Peter's sitting at this table trying to figure out what this is going on. And then an angel says at the same time, there's men at the door, go let them in. So the men that Cornelius had sent came, they explained to him. An angel came to Cornelius, told him to come get you. So the next day they get up and they go. And what's fascinating is when they go, I mean, Peter's still wrestling with what's going on here. He tells them, you know, it's unlawful for a Jew to visit anyone of another nation. But he goes in and Cornelius, he says uh, in verse 33, it's like a no-pressure situation here. He says, tells Peter, Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God. Cornelius had his family and all of his close friends. He knew God was going to do something. He said, Now we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That's got to be one of those situations. You hope God shows up and gives you words, right? I mean, that's a pretty 
hey, we're here in the presence of the Lord. What do you got to say? But here's what's fascinating. Peter proclaims the gospel. And he gets down here in verse, um, really in verse 42 to 43. He talks about that Christ was the one who died. One was buried, was rose again. And in verse 33, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then in verse 44, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on them. In that moment, their hearts were ready. Cornelius was praying to God, yet God chose instead of just to reveal himself to him, go get Peter. Peter proclaims the gospel. They get saved. Peter goes on, he says, who can hold baptism from them? They've received the Holy Spirit just like we have. This, this is an experience that the same place that took place in Acts chapter 2 to them. What they thought wasn't possible, right? Had to be an incredible moment. But again, I, I keep going back. Why didn't God just tell him? Cornelius is seeking the Lord, right? Cornelius is praying to God. And God says, no, wait a second. Go get Peter. And I'm going to have him tell you. Again, God does everything for his glory and for our good. Cornelius and all his family get saved. But God isn't done with Peter yet either. We fast forward to Acts chapter 15, a thing we all know about, the Jerusalem Council. And this is where, as we went through Galatians and Philippians and all this, we talked about this a lot. This is where these Jews come in and they said, hey, these Gentiles, they can be saved, but they have to become Jewish first. In fact, in verse 5 of 15, it says... Uh, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. These Jews said, look, God can save a Gentile. We're not denying what Peter said. We're not denying all those things. However, they have to become Jewish. It is necessary. And then someone stands up. Who is it that stands up? Peter. He stands up and he reminds him of what he's already told him. He said, you know I was there. I saw it happen the same way. Right? He said, why would you try to put this yoke back on these brothers that you and I couldn't handle? He, he talks them through like this, saved by works, we know it doesn't work. Why would you put that on someone else? And in verse 11 it says, but we believe that, they will be saved, that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So he's explaining this, this supernatural experience that he had. But when I first started, I mentioned we, God speaks through his word only, but through other people, through circumstances, through prayer. What Peter experienced, we know, was supernatural and of the Lord because we have the Bible. But we also have the Bible, which gives us the details God wants us to know. And there's something very neat in this in Acts chapter 15. Peter stands up like the apostle of the apostles, especially for the Jews. And he says, I was there. I saw it. Therefore, it's so. And I want us to notice what James has to say about that. In verse 13, it'll be on the screen here. And after they finished speaking... James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. Look at this. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James, in God's word, declares that that experience that Peter had is valid because Scripture already said so. That is huge for us to understand. We experience some pretty radical things. And in certain situations in our life, we say God is speaking to us directly that way. Yet we know for sure He is when it aligns with Scripture. Outside of that, we should have no confidence in anything that we experience. In fact, again, we saw before, left alone, we're like children. 
simple-minded, unlearned, immature. But I love this. We see this incredible scenario that God has chosen to reveal that what affirmed all this, what actually declared that, yes, the Gentiles can be saved by faith alone is because Scripture had already said it, and Peter's thing is just proved by the Scriptures. It's incredible. God has chosen to give us His Word and to speak it into our lives through other people. And as we saw, you and I, we're, we should seek that out. I had a uh, mentor one time tell me that if, our, if your real desire is to serve other people, then the only time you care is when you're not. And that might seem, yeah, but the reality of it is if we put ourselves in that situation, I know for me, when I was a young worship pastor or worship leader, when I first started, everybody was like, oh, that's great. Anyone, a young kid that loves the Lord, everybody gets excited. Six months in, they're like, I don't like this little kid anymore. You know, he's not doing anything that I want him to do. And as they started to say, what you're doing, I don't like, I don't like, I, that irritated me. And, I, and I, to, I'm like, who are you when everyone else says it's okay? And through the years, God revealed just how prideful that actually is. And the reality of it is, if it is my desire to serve other people, if it is my desire to be a righteous man, then I should care when I'm not. Because anyone can toot your horn. But we're to, we're to seek out that righteous rebuke in the, the Word of God. I also want to make, give us some kind of warning and encouragement that we should be careful when we rebuke someone else. It better be grounded in the Word of God. There's all kinds of scripture about us being stumbling block to little children and all these different things. But I also want to encourage you, because I know some who won't say anything because they feel like they can't, if they don't memorize scripture, they're somehow blaspheming. That's not true. In fact, it isn't in my notes, but I, Titus, I believe it's Titus chapter 4, Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Paul tells Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. God's not requiring that we memorize all this. However, it should accord with sound doctrine. Okay, what you feel, what you think, what you've interpreted, if it goes against this, guess what? You're wrong. We need to be very careful when we try to rebuke someone of our own you know, opinion. But also don't be afraid when you see a brother or sister walking out of line to share what God's word says. Because we know that a wise man is going to look at that as kindness. That we care for them. God did all this so that we'd be no longer children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. And more than ever today, when we've got all these different opinions, all these different things, everything that Christians are, that they say here, Christians here, how important is it for us to be mature Christians? And that happens through the church, through the sitting under of God's word, and to building each other up with the word of God. I'm going to ask the praise team to come. And I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we just reflect I want to take just a moment, because I know this is something that we all struggle with. No one likes to be told when you're wrong. I know I don't. Maybe I'm the only one. Especially when you try your best to do what's right. It's very difficult when someone says you're doing the wrong thing. It recently happened to me, even unintentional by the other person. But God had been working in my heart, and someone came up and said, Hey, do you think it would be a good idea to do something? <laughs> and it was exactly what God had been just mulling over in my heart. And I had a moment where I could have been trying to justify why I wasn't doing that or whatever it was. But the reality of it was is I knew what he was saying was true. And I thanked him for telling me that. That way I could move forward. So maybe there's something in your life that someone has constantly been telling you, hey, God's got a better way. God's got something else. 
Let us remember Proverbs 29.1, the one who's often rebuked that stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Let us not be like that. As I pray, take a moment to pray as well. And if God's working on something, let it go. Give it to him and seek out godly counsel. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you care enough for us, that you would discipline us, that you would instruct us, and that you would put people around us that would guide us in the way that you'd have us to walk. But God, I also pray that you give us courage to be the ones to do that to others, that we'd be confident in your word, that we'd be able to stand up. As your word said, iron sharpens iron, that we wouldn't run away from that. But that, God, that we would do what you've called us to do, and that we would see the church be built up, equipped for every good work. God, we love you and we thank you. I pray that you be with us now as we respond through song. I'm going to give you the praise, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.